when you think about an exegetical study like this, it is interesting that what we are doing is different than preaching. We'd love to preach this passage. Uh, Preaching it and teaching it in this kind of a format are somewhat different. They're not completely different. At least uh, preaching begins with the kind of uh, expositional study we are doing. But preaching comes with a, a hortatory dimension and energy, which is about applying the text one way or another in the course of the, of the study. And it's a, it's a different structure of thought. It's a different uh, homiletical energy uh, when you consider the difference between preaching the text and teaching the text. But in essence, it is the same thing. It's Ezra opening the book, reading it, and explaining it to the people. So we're going to begin in John chapter 11, but let's begin with prayer. Father, we are just so thankful that you allow us to be together. Those of us who are in this room this morning, by your sovereign pleasure, here to study your word, Father, we pray that we will receive everything you would intend for us from your word, from this text. And Father, we will receive riches today from the gospel of John in both hours, and for that we are already thankful. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So in John chapter 11, we come to the passage about the death of Lazarus. And this is one of those passages that we know in basic narrative form, but probably have not considered in close narrative analysis. Now, the use of the word narrative reminds us of something we need to think about. This is a narrative structure. This is like a journalistic report with a theological dimension. And we have many of these narratives in Scripture. We have Old Testament historical narratives. We have in the Gospels narratives like this. So a narrative means it's a story. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. It has linear movement. And uh, this, is, this is one of the main ways we remember. We are homo narratus. We are story people. Our minds operate on the basis of that kind of narrative. And so here we have uh, a narrative concerning Jesus and Lazarus. But we are always aware of the fact that this particular kind of narrative that we're reading is historical narrative that took place in space and time and history. In other words, this is not once upon a time. This is on this day in the ministry of Jesus. And so it's important to recognize that even as there's a literary character to the way this is revealed to us in the Gospel of John, this is an account of what happened, something specifically that happened, and that became a catalyst in the entire life and ministry of Jesus, both for those who would recognize him as God in human flesh and the Messiah, and, and, and those who would oppose him, even unto calling for his death. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Let's just stop there and consider how 
this narrative is introduced. Now, well, when's now? Well, now could be any time. You could begin a story saying, now there was a man who did this. Now there was a dog who did this. You can begin just that way. Is that what's happening here? Well, yes and no. Yes, it's an independent narrative. We could pick up right here, and you don't need anything before it in order for it to make sense. But it does come in a flow, and that means that when the word now was used, it's, it's with reference at least a little bit backwards. So look again to verse 40 of chapter 10. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign... But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So you have a pattern of the recognition of belief, which fits exactly what we are told in John chapter 1 we're to be looking for. In John chapter 1, we're told of John who comes, but he is not the light. He has come to bear witness to the light. John is not the one who performs the signs or the miracles. It's Jesus who performs the signs. But in performing the signs, Jesus is doing exactly what John the Baptist said he would do. And so you have in the crowd, people are beginning to connect the dots and say, here's a consistency. John the baptizer talked about who would be coming and what he would do. And already as you read the Gospel of John, we read about John the Baptist. He's not the light. He's come to bear witness to the light. We've seen John the Baptist identify Jesus saying, he must increase, I must decrease. And now you have the crowd beginning to connect the dots now. So now the word now means something a little bit more. Now a certain man was ill. Interesting. This is exactly the way narrative from the ancient Near East would start. Now, a certain man was ill. So if it's introduced, a certain man was ill, you expect you're not going to know his name. This is a certain man. The, the, the identity of this man's not important. That's the way the story, the narrative appears to unfold, except it isn't going to unfold that way because the very next clause tells us that this is Lazarus of Bethany. Lazarus, his name means the Lord has helped. It's a very common name, so common uh, in the time of Jesus that In Luke chapter 16, in the the parable or the account of the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus there is not this Lazarus. Lazarus there is, uh, well, a certain man. In in other words, that is is with reference to anyone. We don't know who that Lazarus was. It's not this Lazarus, but this Lazarus here is described as someone that those who are reading the gospel, they should now recognize who he is because he's from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, there's a very interesting clue right here in the beginning of this passage. Look at the next verse. Verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. What's strange about that? Well, what's strange about it is that we are being told this because this is to be the clue, oh, that Mary, oh, then that Lazarus. But what's the problem? There's no telling of that account that we've read before. Otter still? 
It's in the next chapter. This is sort of like being told in chapter 4, you'll remember what we said in chapter 7. How does that work? Well, it is a literary cue that John understood that the first readers of his gospel would know so much of what is contained in the gospel that they would connect the dots immediately because they already know about this. They already know about Mary washing the feet of Jesus and and drying Jesus' feet with her hair. That's helpful to us because that, that actually helps us to read much of the Gospel of John, understanding that John's Gospel was written with John understanding that at least some of the people who would be the first readers of his Gospel would know of these events. How does that help us? It helps us to understand that what John is trying to do is to explain these events in a Holy Spirit-inspired theological frame. And uh, again, that really helps us to understand what John's doing in the entire gospel. Luke tells us what he's doing in his gospel is to set out an accurate and orderly account, uh, uh, an event-by-event account. And uh, here you have evidence that that's not what John's doing, that John is not trying to do this just as an historian. Rather, the, the Gospel of John is notable because of the theological intensity with which John explains these events. So here we have it. But now you do know who that Mary is, and you do know who that Martha is, and this is the brother of Mary and Martha of the village of Bethany. Well, Lazarus was ill. Here's where we also have to read carefully in this passage, very carefully, because this is one of those narratives that we can mistell easily. And, uh, and, and, and someone reading this account carelessly can, uh, can make all kinds of false assumptions and, 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 and actually get the story wrong in some of the details, which turn out to be important, because the most important issue is to know that, as you know, Lazarus dies and Jesus raises him from the dead. That, that's the most important thing you need to know. But we're given a lot of detail in the story. This is, a, this is an unfolding story. This is a drama, and every bit of it is disclosive. So just, just follow what happens. So we're just told here in the beginning who he is, and we are told that he is ill. Now, that raises another issue. What does it mean to be ill? Uh, by the way, this is, this is a completely irrelevant footnote. And it's just because of my strange interests in all kinds of things. Not too long ago, I was interested in the exact form of received pronunciation. Anyone here know what received pronunciation is? That is the upper crust aristocratic British accent. It's actually a form of dialect called received pronunciation. Received from whom? I don't know. No one has explained that. But it emerged in the early 20th century in the form we know it now, and it was standardized by the BBC. Lord Reith, who was the head of the BBC, he standardized received pronunciation so that you say things just a certain way. And the goal was then that 
if you were listening to the BBC, you heard exactly the same pronunciation all the time. Anywhere in the world, exactly the same pronunciation. Everyone should sound like the queen, or at that time, the king. And that's when I, was, I picked up Lord Reith's Guide to Receive Pronunciation, and that's when I discovered that the royal family is never ill. I didn't know that before. They are indisposed and sick. Indisposed means we're not saying very much. Sick means sick. Lazarus is ill. What does that tell us? Well, the reason I said all that was because he's not indisposed. This is ill as in serious enough that people are worried about his survival. That is what is important to know. When we say someone's ill, we we say the baby's ill, baby's running a fever, I'm not feeling well, maybe I'm ill. This is not that. This is is not that. This is not being indisposed. This is is not not just feeling well. And this is also in a pre-medical age. This is when there are no antibiotics. This is when getting an illness, this is something that most of us cannot even recognize. That's why not only the Bible, but so much of, of, of world history is distant from us emotionally and conceptually because we live in the age of antibiotics and modern medicine. We expect when we are sick to get well. Whereas through much of human history, to get sick in any serious way was to court death. This is why infant and child mortality rates were just so catastrophically high, and why that terror was built into parents' hearts. A child could be fine in the morning and dead at night because a fever could overtake. They had no understanding of how to to deal with this. They had no antibiotics, and this is why sick or, or ill immediately signals to us this is serious. This is serious. And, and in the ancient world, they, they were able to detect, nonetheless, they were able to detect certain kinds of sickness by pattern, certain kinds of, of diseases by pattern and symptomology, but they really couldn't do anything about any of them. Lazarus is ill. That's an alert. And, and then there's a so. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord he whom you love is ill. So they don't have to say who it is, and he's described as the, as the one Jesus loves. It's very sweet, isn't it? So we know that Jesus has a relationship with Lazarus, and it tells us of the friends of Jesus, of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, this trio, brother and two sisters, who are the friends of Jesus, so much so that they don't even have to say his name when they write to Jesus. And they know that Jesus loves him and is concerned about him and will care about him. And so if they send to Jesus the word that he is ill, it implies this could be very, very serious. Implied as a can you help us? Wouldn't you want to come? So this comes to Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. At several points in this passage, Jesus is going to say something rather unexpected. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, let's be honest. We have some idea. We have a very good idea what that means. 
But what would the disciples have thought that meant? There is a translation issue here. Excuse me. And that translation issue comes down to what it means when Jesus says, this is not an illness that leads to death. Well, let's be candid. We know that Lazarus does die. So what is Jesus saying here? He's not misleading the disciples. He, uh, he's not unaware of what's about to happen. So what is Jesus saying? A, a better way to understand this would be to understand the translation as this is not an illness that terminates in death. Understood rightly, what Jesus is saying here is, okay, death won't have the last word in this. But this is going to be for the glory of God. There's going to be a disclosure here of the glory of God. That, that's why this is happening. Now, remember that Jesus has already used very similar language in John chapter 9. When the disciples see the man uh, near the temple who was blind from birth, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, wrong. Neither this man nor his parents sinned that he was born blind, but rather this is so that the works of God may be displayed in him. In other words, everything is is for a purpose. This man's blindness is for a purpose, and the works of God are about to be displayed in him. And of course, they were as Jesus healed him. Jesus gave him his sight. And, And so Jesus is telling the disciples in such a way that maybe they did sort of understand what was about to happen. When Jesus says, I'm not going, this illness doesn't terminate in death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Don't miss that. He identifies himself as the Son of God. This is a crucial turn in the Gospel of John. So oftentimes you'll have people who will say, uh, the the, the old argument of theological liberals, um, this was trotted out all all the time uh, by theological liberals and and some neo-Orthodox scholars. Jesus never claimed to be divine. You know, look in the Gospels where he calls himself the Son of Man. Look, 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 at, look, at, look at the indirect language that Jesus often uses here. Oh, oh, yes, we have to acknowledge that the Gospels record that he acts as the Son of God. And it, 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 it is true that he received worship as the Son of God. But in the language Jesus uses of himself, they've often argued, that he doesn't, he doesn't claim to be God. Okay, you have a big problem with that called the Gospel of John, which is why so many of those liberals said, well, okay, then let's talk about the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That is why theological liberals have hated the Gospel of John more than the other Gospels, because the Gospel of John is the Gospel you can't get around. There's no hint here. Jesus here to his disciples, and remember this is John chapter 11. He describes himself in just these words. This illness is not terminated in death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So he is saying not only that the Father is going to be glorified in this, he is speaking of himself being glorified in the the unfolding experience of Lazarus. Then we come to now again. Narrative drive. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Very sweet. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Well, what does it mean when we hear that when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was? Well, where, where is he? The best understanding is that he was probably in an area northwest of Jerusalem that was about a, a day or two days' journey. And he stayed there two days longer. Now, that should add some questions. You know, if, if you're concerned about someone, why do you, why do you wait two days? Is this, is this a callous disregard for Lazarus and for Mary and Martha? Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he loves them. Lazarus is ill, and Mary and Martha are so concerned about him that they get the word to Jesus. That's not an easy thing to do. They didn't call him on his smartphone. They cared enough, they got word to Jesus all the way from, from Bethany near Jerusalem. And Jesus stays two days. Two days longer in the place where he was. What, what, what must the disciples have thought? Maybe he knows that Lazarus isn't that ill. Maybe what he said to us was, Lazarus isn't going to die. But then you'll notice the turn comes as Jesus in himself knows that the time is right. And in verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Okay? That's a bomb. Notice the disciples know it. They're not pleased with this at all. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? This is what happens in the last half of John chapter 10. The Jews seek to stone him, calling him a blasphemer. And, and now Jesus says, let's go right back there. And the disciples are saying, Lord, that, that's not a good idea. They're, they're not for this plan, going back to Judea. But Jesus has clearly set his mind to go back to Judea. He answers them in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Well, okay, what does that mean? Well, remember that in verse 4 of John chapter 9, Jesus said to the disciples, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Now, this is not something that is unique to Jesus. It's not something unique to Jews. This was actually deeply driven into the, uh, the world picture and experience of the Roman Empire. Uh, by the way, it's built into the experience of all human beings, the distinction between night and day. But the Romans standardized a 12-hour day of light in which things happen. This is why you have the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the twelfth hour, and so it was basically you have 12 hours that were designated as being basically hours of light and then other hours that were basically understood as hours of darkness. And, and the hours of light were when it was proper to be out working. That was when it's proper. No one, it's the same thing today. 
Uh, it's considered more strange if you're out on the streets at night than if you're out on the streets during the day. The day is the time when everybody's working. No one asks any question about a delivery truck driving around at 11 o'clock a.m. A delivery truck at 3 a.m.? That would raise a little suspicion. That's the point Jesus is making. But what in the world's the theological point? The point is there's a right time and a wrong time. And, and that John chapter 9, verse 4 explanation is that, uh, that we must work the works who of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no man can work. So he's saying to the disciples, now is the right time to work in public. Now's the right time to do these things which will be visible to the world. We're not, in other words, Jesus is not going to perform the miracle. He's going to perform at night in the, under the cover of darkness. He is going to do this in the full light of day. That's metaphorical, not just a matter of sunlight. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's work backwards. Thomas. First time he's mentioned in the Gospel of John. Here he is. He's uh, identified as Thomas, called the twin. And he says to his disciples, oh, let's go that we may die with him. That probably is not a strong statement of affirmation and confidence. It is probably the opposite. It is probably the disciples thinking that Jesus is going back to Judea where they just tried to stone him. And not only are they going to stone him, they're going to stone them. And Thomas is just saying, well, here we go. Here we go. Let's go that we may die with him. But working backwards in the text, Jesus refers to Lazarus not just as my friend, but as our friend, which means that, again, in the public ministry of Jesus, Mary and Martha are so well-known that the disciples would know who they are. And uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are now in the circle of friends around Jesus in such a way that uh, he can say of Lazarus that he is our friend. And then he says he sleeps. Now, again, over and over again in the New Testament, we're going to have that beautiful redefinition for believers of death is sleep. For believers, this is what's so precious to us. Jesus, those who die in Christ sleep safely in Jesus. The Bible says to be, we're, we're, we're absent from the body in that period and present with the Lord, and uh, there is a sleep that redefines death. And he's speaking of that here, and the disciples don't get it because they think he is resting in sleep. Jesus knows this. And then he said, as you see here, plainly, Lazarus has died. Now, notice carefully the narrative. Word was taken to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. No word was brought to Jesus that Lazarus has died. See, omniscience of Christ, he, he knows that Lazarus has died. He makes the announcement 
that Lazarus has died. But he goes on to explain, and again, this is very much like what he did earlier, just a few verses before. He explains the meaning of this in such a way that the disciples had to know that he's saying all of this is for a purpose. Lazarus has died, and for your sake. It's the strangest statement, isn't it? Lazarus has died. Mary and Martha, you can already know, are deeply grieving. And he says to the disciples, but this is for your sake. For your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, something shows up here that's going to show up again and again and again. It's going to show up from Martha. It's going to show up from Mary. And and here Jesus says it before they can say it. There is a massive assumption. It's a right assumption. There's a massive assumption behind this that points to the fact that we have already. Let's just try to imagine that we are first-time readers of the Gospel of John. Let's just try to think that we don't know anything about Jesus, about what we would have learned about Jesus from these first verses and chapters of John until we come to John chapter 11. If we knew only that, what would it mean when Jesus would say, and then later Martha's going to say, and then Mary's going to say, if you had been here. Three times in this passage, in the voice of Jesus and then of Mary and then of Martha, it is confidently asserted that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. So the readers of the Gospel of John already know, here is the Son of God in human flesh. Here is the healer. Here is is the one who can give life. We're not surprised, are we, when he gives light and sight to the blind. We're not surprised when he does that. We're not surprised when he is able to cast out demons and heal. We're not surprised because we already know who he is. And there's so much confidence in who he is that, as we shall see, Mary and Martha both independently say, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But before they can say it, Jesus tells his disciples, if I had been there, he wouldn't have died. But this is so that you will see the glory revealed. All right, we continue. Verse 17, now when Jesus came... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, how do you get the four days? Well, it's very easy. So Jesus stays two days, and then it was evidently a two-day's journey. So there there are the four days. So after this journey, he finds that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany's near Jerusalem. It's basically part of greater Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So in this case, when it says the Jews, that really means from Jerusalem and and, and neighboring villages. And Mary and Martha were known. They had relatives. They had friends. Lazarus was probably fairly well known. In any event, those came to console. And and this is uh, in all the ancient world, in all the ancient world, in much of the world now, mourning is a formal process. And, And it still is in some sense among us, but... Frankly, we've lost a lot of the Christian heritage of mourning. We've institutionalized death, and we've scheduled death by funerals and memorial services, and we use funeral homes often and things like this, and 
All that to say that it's very different even than when I was growing up in the Deep South, where when a death took place, everybody gathered at the house. And I mean everybody. I mean, in small-town America, half the town showed up at the house. Ladies carrying casseroles and uh, bowls of soup and they're just and, and staying, just staying at the house. People were just all over this this morning. Uh, it was a deeply humanizing, solemnizing process. That, that's what's going on here. There are many who've turned out. Well, so in verse twenty, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. We won't dwell on the personality difference, the character difference between Mary and Martha. That will be crucial in other passages. But but here it's Martha who goes out to Jesus and meets him. And when Martha sees him, she says, quote, I know that he... No, excuse me. When Martha goes out, as you look back at verse 21, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So there it is. Again, if you had only been here, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. You weren't here, he died. She goes on, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Wow. So this isn't just a, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. This is, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But I know that even now, if you ask anything of God, he'll do it. Isn't it interesting that Martha has this hope of resurrection? Where does this come from? Where, where, would, where would Martha have this, this confidence? Could it be rooted in the Scriptures? Well, of course it could. Think of the Old Testament. Think of Elijah and Elisha. Both of them raising the dead to life, as instruments of God, raising the dead to life. And, and, and Martha here says to Jesus, I know that if you had been here, you wouldn't have died, but I also know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. In verse 23, Jesus responds, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, just pause there for a moment. She does? Really? She knows that he will rise again in the resurrection? How does she know that? Has she heard Jesus teach that? By the time you get to the first century in Judaism, Judaism is divided between a majority who believe in the resurrection that is to come and a minority who do not. The minority are the equivalent of theological liberals. They're the Sadducees. The Sadducees are identified by what they don't believe in. They don't believe in angels. Uh, uh, They don't believe in resurrection from the dead. And uh, so when you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees debating one another, the Pharisees are the conservatives, the Sadducees are the liberals. 
But mainstream Judaism, based upon Old Testament confidence, believed in a resurrection from the dead, believed that even as the dead would go down to Sheol, the realm of the dead, there would be a day when God would bring about a resurrection. She thinks this is what Jesus is talking about. And that, that tells us something about her theological instincts. And it tells us something basically good about her. This is not a problem that, that Martha answers this way. It indicates that she's faithful. She's, uh, she's biblical. She, she knows that he's going to rise on the, on the day of resurrection. But Jesus says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. This is one of the most important of the I am statements in that in its progressive and intensity, now we have resurrection. Not only will he be resurrected from the dead, he's the power to resurrect his own from the dead. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. He had told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. He didn't mean will not die in mortality. He meant will not stay dead. I am the resurrection and the life. It's John 3.16, just recapitulated now here in a different context. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Again, the centrality of belief just as in John 3, 16. She said to him in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, stop and look and listen. Here is Martha, who in speaking of the resurrection from the dead, says of Christ, who says, I am the resurrection and the life, She says two things. She says, I know that you are the Messiah and the Son of God. It's astounding. This is is absolutely astounding. This is is as astounding as when Peter in Matthew chapter 16 says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is is as astounding as what had happened already in John chapter 6 when Peter says, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is, this is astounding, and it's coming from a woman. It's coming from Martha, Martha the theologian here. Martha has, has Old Testament theology. She's a biblical theologian. She, she loves the Scriptures. She knows the Scriptures. She's able to go to the Old Testament and weave the Scriptures together so that she believes in resurrection. She already does. She tells Jesus this before he says anything about being the resurrection and the life. He then says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life, and she doesn't miss a beat. She simply comes back and says, I know that you're the Messiah. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It's astounding, spectacular. In verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher, Rabbi, is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus was not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb 
to weep there. It's very important. This is, this is exactly in, in Christ's sovereignty what he wants. He wants Mary to come out to him, and the crowd will follow. So, so now the stage is being set for what's going to happen. And then she says exactly what Martha says. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The pattern we're supposed to see is, yes, it would absolutely have been true that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus would not have died. Jesus says that himself. But once again, we're told that it is better than that something happens in order that a something greater might happen. Jesus himself will say, a seed planted in the ground must die in order that that growth will come. Something... Something lesser has to happen in order that something greater can happen. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was greatly moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Again, astounding. Just simply astounding. So here you have, first of all, Jesus showing the emotion of genuine grief. He loved his friend and and he weeps. Now, he knows he's going to raise him from the dead, so why does he weep? Jesus never tells us that death is not real and is not to be grieved. Jesus actually authorizes our grief. You know, if if, if Jesus didn't, maybe we would trivialize death to such an extent we would say, well, um, we know that we're going to rise from the dead, so what's the big deal about death? We don't need to grieve. The Bible authorizes grieving for death. We, We lose this loved one we, we, you know, the loved one is not the one who is lost so long as that loved one is in Christ. It is we who have lost, and Jesus here authorizes grief. He, he wept. The Jews recognize this. And then here's the astounding thing. The Jews, and when that phrase is used, it means these are, these are not his disciples. These, these are not his friends. But these are some of the same people, the same designation who had tried to stone him just just briefly before, that's why the disciples are scared about going back to Judea. And, and, and now they're saying, you know, if he was able to give sight to the blind, if he had been here, wouldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Fascinating speculation. But as much as we would wish to move quickly just because of time, We're going to look at the passage and then understand how Jesus brings all of this to conclusion. And then next week we will come back and look at verses 38 and following, continuing. But just notice, because we're not going to leave ourselves hanging. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said on the account of the people, I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. When we're together next week, we'll be able to look at that passage, unbind him, and let him go. This is one of the most disclosive events in the Gospel of John. Most of us remember it merely as Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, but it is so much more than that, as we have seen in Mary and in Martha and in Lazarus and in the disciples and in Jesus. And we are out of time. Let's pray. Father, every minute you give us to study your word is precious. Every word is precious. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will use these minutes and these words to conform us to the image of Christ. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.